and welcome to today's installment of COVID-19 Law and Policy Briefing, a project of George Consortium. George is a group of academics and practitioners working to advance public health through the law. These briefings are presented by Public Health Law Watch at Northern University School of Law, the Center for Public Health Law Research at Temple University, and the Law Section of the American Public Health Association. The briefings are projects intended to provide expert legal analysis during the COVID-19 pandemic and to answer some key legal and policy question about what's legal and what's not in context of the <clears throat> pandemic response. My name is Leo Boletsky and I'm a professor of law and health sciences at Northeastern. And joining me today is Alex McClellan, who is currently the Banting postdoctoral fellow at University of Ottawa and is going to be transitioning to Carleton University in Canada. Uh, Alex, welcome. Thanks for having me. So the topic of today's conversation is criminalization of transmission of COVID-19 and other criminal justice, criminal law responses. And your doctoral research in the area of HIV criminalization um, is a really apt lens through which to examine these uh, state responses to the current pandemic. So our you know, previous major epidemic was uh, HIV. And I wanted to ask you to talk a little bit about that research and basically you know, you, what you found and, and how that may have lessons for uh, the current state responses. Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me. And thanks for that introduction, um, Leo. First of all, a caveat, I'm based in Canada. So my research was done with people in Canada uh, living with HIV. I'm a qualitative researcher, qualitative socio-legal researcher. And I interviewed people living with HIV across Canada who had faced criminal charges in relation to alleged non-disclosure, uh, exposure, or transmission of HIV. Canada is one of the leading countries in the world, along with the United States, in terms of applying the criminal law to manage uh, the pandemic or the epidemic of HIV. It's different in Canada because in Canada we have one specific criminal code. So it's different than in, in the states where you administer the criminal law differently federally and um, statewide. And so in Canada we have one specific criminal law. And the laws that are most often applied in relation to HIV, we don't have an HIV-specific law or statute on the books in our criminal code. We apply the law through common law. Um, and most often what's applied is charges of aggravated sexual assault, the act of not telling someone you have HIV. HIV is constituted as an assault, a sexual assault, and HIV is the aggravating factor. So aggravated sexual assault in our criminal code is one of the harshest charges in the criminal code. It comes with up to a lifetime sentence and a mandatory reg registration as a sex offender. Um, and I interviewed around 16 people across Canada who were threatened with those charges or who faced those charges. And I think one of the things um, that is really relevant to note is that almost all of those people, or all of those people actually that I interviewed, had no intent to harm anyone to transmit the virus to anyone or cause any harm. The sex they had was consensual. They often took measures to protect their partners by either taking HIV medication to render themselves not, not infectious, um, or in some instances, uh, tried to tell their partner they had HIV. So one woman I interviewed, she gave her partner a condom. He didn't use the condom. And under the way our law is applied, she is now a registered sex offender. She spent multiple years in jail because her partner didn't use a condom in the context of sex. In other instances, people did tell their partners, but their partner went to the police anyways when they were ang angry at, at them and lied to the police. And the person who was trusted was the person who was HIV negative, not the person who's HIV positive. By talking to people and hearing their firsthand stories, we understood that, the, or we can understand that the way that people living with HIV are perceived in the media, in the context where people are criminalized, where you're perceived as or presented and framed as someone trying to infect others, and 
out there trying to act as a perpetrator or trying to enact harm onto people. It's actually the complete opposite. People are doing the best that they can once they know they have the virus. And I think one of the things that can be applied to COVID, although they're very different and I'm really hesitant to kind of make comparisons, but I think one of the things that can be applied is that uh, is that like once people know they have a virus or once the people know they have a illness, they're going to take care of their health. Um, and I think that's where testing is key. Like in Canada, we're re not really rolling out testing for COVID in, in a very effective way. And in relation to HIV, we know that new transmissions of HIV happen among people who have yet to test. There's like 17, between 17 and 12% of people across Canada living with HIV who do not know they have the virus. And that's where transmissions are occurring. It's not amongst people who know they have the virus. So that's a bit of my, some of my reflections based on my past research that might be helpful. Right, right. In, in other words, the knowing your status and understanding the risks is really where the yield of public health intervention is in terms of prevention. But yet a lot of attention and a lot of resources going to these criminal justice and criminal law interventions in, in epidemic control. And why is that? I think it's, uh, it's uh, there's such a tendency to blame specifically around communicable disease. There's such a panic. There's such a moral panic and just general panic and hysteria around them that we see policy and practice enacted out of that panic, um, enacted out of kind of stigmatizing ideas. So in Canada, like we have a problematic healthcare system, but we do have somewhat socialized medicine, although it's a patchwork and it's not perfect. And so a majority of people living with HIV in Canada who test will be on anti-HIV treatment. So there's no way that most people will be even transmittable. But yet the criminal law still applies in these cases. So it comes to not even be about risk of transmission. Um, it's just the criminal law enacting what it often does, which is acting in a retributive way, acting uh, to uh, in, to enact force uh, around morals or ideas of people acting immorally. And all of the kind of things that are signified around certain communicable diseases, specifically HIV, which is highly stigmatized and highly moralized. Um, and we're coming to see something similar with COVID in different ways, but like that's how those operate. And I think uh, one of the things that's interesting that happens when, uh, or one of the things I learned when talking to uh, people who were criminalized is there's often this distinction made around HIV. There's often this distinction made between responses from the criminal justice system and responses from public health, as though one is more benevolent than the other, that public health responses, we shouldn't do use the criminal law, we should use public health approaches. And when we saw, when I talked to people, people that I talked to, we saw that there was like a real intertwining of the two, and they often were re reliant on each other. Public health would rely on the criminal justice system to do its bidding in certain parts, and in other cases, the criminal justice system would rely on public health information to enforce um, the criminal law, and they would go back and forth and do the same. So once someone became an object of risk and uh, identified through the criminal justice system or through the public health institutions, they would become intertwined between the two, and it was hard to distinguish that. And I think that's something that's a concern around COVID when we see how COVID enforcement or how quickly the public health system has relied on the criminal justice system. The police are positioned right now as a central actor in responding to COVID all across the U.S. and Canada and around the world. And that's just something really interesting for us to note as people concerned with public health, that how quickly their reliance on the criminal justice system and police comes into view when we deal with communicable disease and fear and panic. No, absolutely. Great that you mentioned that because I'm working right now on a, on a piece about carceral public health. And it's it, it actually very much maps out onto what you just talked about, which is that the criminal justice and the public health systems really act synergistically. And at times, the criminal justice system takes on the ban 
manner of public health and does something that is rhetorically in pursuit in pursuit of public health, but isn't really you know isn't really rooted in public health practice. But at other times, the public health system takes on a disciplinarian and punitive sort of approach, and in many ways also acts in a discriminatory and stigmatizing manner that very much reflects the uh, practices of the criminal justice system. So as we turn now to your current research into the role of policing and enforcement, criminal justice enforcement in responses to uh, COVID-19, I wanted to ask you to talk about the Policing the Pandemic Project and also just uh, to flag issues around discriminatory or uneven enforcement of these laws and the policing responses that you're seeing. Sure. Thanks for that. Um, yeah, I've been working with my colleague, Alex Lucond at the University of Toronto in the Department of Sociolegal Studies to develop this Policing the Pandemic map. And we started uh, just kind of tracing out the ramp up of uh, police, new police powers and the kind of rise of authoritarianism that was taking place and also various kind of incidents of enforcement that we were tracking kind of across Canada. And we talked about putting them visually on this map. So we started um, doing that and you can see our map and it's been growing. We've kind of been trying to update it about once a week for across Canada, various different types of enforcements that are taking place. And I think we wanted to, um, the way I have been understanding COVID is by looking at the, like the John Hopkins map online and understanding it geographically across space and time. And so we wanted to kind of do the same thing with enforcements to kind of put into question the role of police in responding to the crisis and also specifically collaborations with public health. And so in Canada, we have a range of complex network of different laws that have been enacted, but every province across the country has uh, is a state in a state of emergency, which I think is pretty similar to the U.S. Um, and under various different emergency acts, um, police are now enforcing physical distancing, quarantine orders. Some There's some checkpoints between places. So if you travel certain places, there's checkpoints and then minimal gathering rules. Uh, and uh, we've also seen a number of also criminal cases in relation to using or people being alleged to use COVID as a threat. Most often that has been happening uh, in the context of an arrest for something else, like a minor theft or something like that, where police are then alleged that somebody coughed and said they had COVID, which is something that we have seen in the past with HIV, where HIV is, has been used or said to have been used by police as a threat, which is interesting because uh, in the context of HIV in the past with policing, we've seen often that police um, will use the potential fear that someone has HIV to justify force. And so I'm kind of seeing the similar thing or thinking that the similar thing is happening with COVID. A couple of years ago, Toronto Police Services tasered a black man uh, who had said he had HIV and they said the police said to onlookers, like, be careful, this man has HIV. And they were using the fact that he had HIV as a as a uh, justification for tasering him and pushing his head down into the cement. And so I think similar ways we're seeing, I think, potential for COVID, the fear around COVID to be used as a threat to justify force in the context of an arrest for something else. But most of the majority of the instances of people uh, enforcement actions happening are around physical distancing and minimal gathering rules. And in certain provinces of Canada, police have have had uh, issued uh, thousands of tickets. Uh, so in the province of Quebec, we've seen over 3,000 tickets be issued, uh, over $3 million in fines being enacted. And it's been hard for us to track and figure out who is actually being targeted by these. But um, from on the ground reports, we know that 
that homeless people have been ticketed for not having a home to stay home in. There was the harm reduction street worker in Montreal who was arrested for not physical distancing for trying to hand out harm reduction supplies to a, a man she was working with on the street. We know because of the wide range of snitch lines that have popped up across Canada, and I'm not sure if you have a similar thing in the U.S., but I'm pretty sure you do, um, but there's a massive rise of snitch culture, that um, a uh, brothel was shut down because of people snitching on a brothel that was still operating in Quebec City. And we have quite a few incidents that have been reported of, of people of color being targeted by a bylaw officer. So bylaw officers have been deputized with municipal bylaw officers have been given the power to enforce provincial laws now and enforce these emergency management or emergency acts, emergency legislation. And so bylaw officers, usually people who are like handing out parking tickets or jaywalking tickets have now been deputized with the uh, discretion to decide what is and what is not a public health issue and then are handing out tickets to people. And there's been a number of incidences too. Syrian migrants were ticketed um, for being with their families in a park. One bylaw officer also was reported as punching a black man with his child when he was walking in a park because the man wouldn't give his ID to the bylaw officer. So there's a number of concerning incidents that we've seen. Another thing that's happened is that Indigenous reserve communities in Canada have, have put in place curfews in, at night. So we've seen a couple of charges of people being alleged to violate curfew because they're out after 10 p.m. Yeah. So a bunch of yeah, things like that are taking place. This is very similar to what's going on in the U.S. And there's been a number of uh, video clips and other kinds of uh, photographic evidence of pretty pretty violent and uh, at times at times violent and other times in many ways enforcement that doesn't actually practice what it preaches uh, in the sense that the the officers themselves are are not practicing social distancing obviously not even wearing masks or gloves and um, in that way certainly uh, endangering both the public health as well as the occupational health of the officers themselves and and so I wanted to so in, in some ways you know there's been a lot of coverage of these protests right in the U.S. especially I'm not sure about Canada where public health measures are seen as a form of tyranny and there's you know at least in the kind of mainstream media and in academia there's a little bit of a tendency to dunk on these protests and to say you know these folks are not you know driven by evidence and you know a bunch of conspiracy theorists but but in 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 a way what you're tracking confirms that there is government overreach and you know kind of a misallocation of resources towards the kinds of things that are purported to advance a public health mission but in fact probably heated and in the in a context of you know enforcement against vulnerable people actually sort of further marginalize already vulnerable folks and and so I wanted you to comment on that and then uh, bring us to uh, a place where perhaps we can take a different path sure so I mean first of all yeah police here are also not using uh, PPE or uh, and or following their own guidance so there was an incident in uh, Halifax where police uh, were, uh, were called on a, a black man in who was in public and um, came to arrest him violently and said uh, to onlookers that social distancing doesn't apply to police and so that's one of my concerns and one of uh, our project policing the pandemic with Alex Lucas concerns is that the ramp up of police of policing and police being in the streets not following public health guidance is going to put people at greater risk. People who are already vulnerable to COVID, who don't have a home to go home to, who haven't been able to practice social distancing because they are people who are on the front lines of the crisis, working in um, grocery stores, people being delivery workers and so on. We have had some similar protests like that in the U 
U.S. I mean, in Canada, similar to ones in the, uh, that have been in the U.S. Um, from photos I've seen, they seem to be primarily white people uh, who aren't historically targets of policing, I would say, um, who seem to have like libertarian politics, who aren't interested in notions of collectivity or supporting uh, society and public health, I would say. But that's just a, from general, from just general overview of me looking at stuff online. But I think there definitely is government overreach. But one of the things I would I would caution is that we we do need to practice public health guidance. And I think that's one of the things that those group those protesters aren't aren't interested in. And I think we are very concerned or I'm, I am very concerned in our project facing the pandemic is very concerned around supporting public health. We just don't think a reliance on the criminal justice system or forms of enforcement will do that because ticketing ticketing people and the tickets that people have been getting are a lot of money. So in uh, Ontario, they're almost a thousand dollars. And in Quebec, they're uh, $1,500. In the prairies, in some places, they're $2,000. And we've documented almost uh, close to $6 million in tickets being issued so far. And these are tickets that are hitting people who are have to be out on the street, who are working class people, who are already really hit hard in the context of this pandemic. So it's just going to add to the crisis. I think in terms of moving forward, I think this is a moment and not necessarily an opportunity. I'm hesitant to use that word, but it's like a moment to reimagine uh, in a moment of crisis, a moment to reimagine society. And I think that's one of the reasons we've been trying to intervene and put into question the role of police and the role of public health reliance or the public health reliance on police is to put all of this in question. Because when we're responding to a pandemic, a public health issue, we should be doing so with effective and evidence-based approaches. And responding with police has never been proven to work. Fines don't stop people from doing things we don't want them to do. Um, none of these approaches have been proven effective, and all they do is create further division. They create uh, distrust. They create uh, this kind of, we have this niche culture where people are suspicious and scared, and none of that creates the context of collectivity and mutual support that we need to be uh, to effectively respond to a public health crisis. So I think the way forward is just like the undoing of these ways of thinking that we can blame one individual person for breaking the rules. Um, and then that will stop the pandemic. And so I think one of the things that that does is it individualizes the way that we think about the crisis. It evacuates any responsibility from the state. Oh, it's my neighbor who's walking outside with his kids. It's not the fact that we have no access to testing so we can understand how to actually respond. Um, it's not the fact that our healthcare system has been decimated by years of austerity. It's not the fact that people have no home. There's so many homeless people who have no homes to stay in. That's not the thing that results from this. It's just, oh, I'm going to call the police on this guy who I saw in the park. So this kind of individualizing, rule-breaking way of thinking of the pandemic is something that has to be undone. That's a great note to, to end on. And I would just add that, you know, in addition to uh, affecting or, or impeding, I guess, the public health response, again, these kinds of these kinds of uh, measures also put the health of first responders, specifically of law enforcement, in jeopardy. And we've seen in the U.S. a number of law enforcement officers are already who have died. So deploying first responders in this way by the state also endangers them as well. So we, we're we out of time. Thank you so much, Alex, Thank uh, you. for joining us. We have a really exciting lineup of briefings this week. Uh, tomorrow, we will be discussing human subjects research in the context of COVID-19. And on Thursday, also at noon, we'll, we'll, we'll be talking about liability shields in the context of the pandemic. Thank you again to Alex McCullen. I'm Leo Boletsky, and this has been a edition of COVID-19.
good law and policy briefing from uh, Public Health Law Watch. Thanks so much.